Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 15. And that can be found on page 874 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs if you want to follow with us. We started uh, this story as part of a series of stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Uh, And so we started the first two last week, and this will be kind of a continuation of what we saw last week as we looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin last week. Now we're going to look at the parable of the lost son or lost sons. Um, This is part of our series called Meet Jesus, and what we are pursuing is just a clearer picture of who Jesus is uh, and how he embodies the good news, the gospel for us. Uh, And so this week we're calling it The Father's Love. So as Jesus is telling this final story, he's intensifying a lot of what he already said in the first two stories we saw last week. So last week we saw this idea that Um, God cares about the lost, that he values the lost because they're made in the image of God. And so Jesus was countering the habit of the religious people of his day. It's a similar habit we have in our day and time as well in that we devalue people who sin. And we begin to believe as religious people that maybe we're a little better than the people that sin in more obvious and public ways. Uh, We don't value everyone as made in the image of God, but we devalue people. So Jesus is showing here, no, God values all people. God pursues people, uh, and there is rejoicing and celebration when a sinner repents and turns to God. And so he's going to continue that this week with the story of the lost son or lost sons, and I believe it's really focusing in on the father's love. The father is the key character in this story. Um, So as we wrestle with uh, who are we in relation to God, we're going to come away with this story showing us that, that God's love is really the preeminent factor. Who God is is more important, really, than who we are, uh, and that everything we do is in reaction to that. So we'll read Luke. It's 15, uh, 11 through 32, so the last half of this chapter. <clears throat> he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry 
and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let me pray and ask God to help us. God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here, that you would teach us uh, what this story is about, that you would help us to see more clearly uh, the picture of you as this loving father. We thank you that you give us Jesus so that we can see you in this way, and we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is really a continuation from last week. Jesus gave three stories to try to confront the religious people of the day that God cares about the lost. And so we need to look at the context in verses 1 and 2. The context in verses 1 and 2 is very important. It says uh, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And then it says the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the religious leaders and teachers of the day, the people that were very careful to do what's right, these people were grumbling, saying this man receives sinners and eats with him. So that's the conflict. You've got sinners, public sinners, coming to Jesus, wanting to be around Jesus, wanting to be close to Jesus, wanting to hear from Jesus. And then you've got religious people, people that are very careful to do what's right, to read their Bibles, to be obedient. Those people that tried to do things the right way, they're mad. They're mad because Jesus seems to be receiving these people that haven't done everything the right way. So there's a conflict, and Jesus tells the stories we saw last week, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, to say that, you know what, all people have value to God. And if someone is lost, they still have value to God. Even if they're a sinner, they're still someone made in the image of God, and God is going to see them as valuable, and he's going to go to hard work and effort to pursue them and draw them back in. And Jesus showed in those last two parables that there's always going to be this pursuit of those that are lost, And there's always going to be a rejoicing in heaven over those who repent, who turn and come back to the Father. And so Jesus is reiterating all that again in this story, but there's really interesting twists in this story. This story is much more confrontational. It's like he laid the groundwork with the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. He kind of laid the basic facts out in that story. But in this story, he's really shocking the religious people of their day. For, For one thing... The beginning of this story starts with a a really upsetting, scandalous concept, and that is that this younger son is treating his father in an outrageous way. Specifically in verse uh, 12, it says, he said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. That right there is just one verse, but it's a very important piece of the context for us. Any self-respecting Jew of their day would have beat the son and driven him out of the city. Culturally, it was crazy that this father just graciously gave in to what the the son requested. And so we have to understand that even right out of the gate, this is a shocking story. It's only going to get more shocking. But Jesus is starting with the shock. He's starting with the bang here. He's saying, there was this man that was really gracious and kind when his son was uh, embarrassing and shaming towards him. And he just graciously gave the son what he asked for. 
it reminds me a little bit of Romans 1, where Romans 1 says that when we sin, part of the way God actually reveals his wrath to us through sin is giving us over to our sin. It's part of how we actually learn how horrible sin is, is God saying, okay, you you can try it out. I'll, I'll give you what you want. And so in this story, it starts out shocking. Any self-respecting father would have beat the guy, would have driven him out of town. It would have been a huge embarrassment. It would have been a huge shame. But this father just graciously divides up his property and gives him his share. Interesting little side note that I've heard several commentators comment on is that the word property here is, is literally the Greek word bios, which, you know, the word biology, that, that basically means life. So it's not the typical um, concrete word for property here. It's he divided up his life, kind of the implication of his livelihood. I mean, just imagine you spent all these years building a livelihood for your children, blood, sweat, and tears, and one of them says, I just kind of want to trash it. I wish you were dead. I wish I could have your stuff and be done with you. I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. So it's a great insult to him. And so that's, that's the beginning of the story. It's already a shocking story. It's already taking the other two stories that he was starting with and, and twisting and intensifying. So now what's going to happen? Now what's going to happen? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see that this son begins to miss the father. He begins to miss the father, long for the father. Remember the goodness of the father when he's in the midst of his sin. When he's in the brokenness, he starts to remember how good the father is. Look at verses 13 through 17. We see him missing the father in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Again, many commentators say he would have had to go to a far country because the citizens of that town wouldn't have stood for his disrespect towards his father. So he went to a far country and it says he squandered his property in reckless living. So basically, he wanted all the dad's riches. He didn't want to be connected to dad anymore, and he wants to just go spend all the stuff and just have fun. He's he's pursuing pleasure. It's a common theme in our culture today. We we think we'll find salvation through pleasure. We think we'll find salvation through through spending, through experience, through uh, new pleasures that take us to a new level, new highs. And that's what he does, and he spends everything he has. He goes on and says in verse 14, when he had spent everything. It was all gone now. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Um, So he spends everything he's got. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's got a lot of money. He spends it in wild living and reckless living. And then not only is he out of money, but now there's a famine. So things are getting worse. It's difficult for everybody, especially someone who has no money. So it says in verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Um, I want you to understand that this is now taking the shock to a whole new level. Um, This is making the story even more disgusting. Uh, Pigs are already dirty, but the Jews saw the pigs as ceremonially unclean. So it was a part of their religion even. It wasn't just culture. You know, we have cultural practices and then we have religiously held convictions. This was in the law that they weren't supposed to eat pigs right? So that meant they didn't handle pigs. They didn't work with pigs. They kept their distance from pigs. And so this was another shocking twist in the story. Not only has this son disgraced the father, not only has he spent everything he's had, he's wasted his life, but now he's with pigs. And it gets even worse here. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. 
and no one gave him anything. At this moment, most of the Jewish hearers of the story would have gagged a little bit. I mean, this, this is that disgusting. For us, it's kind of like distant. It's remote. But they would have gagged a little bit. They would have been like, this is so, you know, like, Jesus, don't stop with the story. This is too much. This is so repulsive. That's how deep he was. This is a kind of a dark rock bottom place. He just he hit the bottom. I have a picture of a pig eating slop in the mud. Um, I know it's a little, it's so close up, it's hard to tell what's happening, but that's the pig sticking his snout into the mud to eat the half-rotten food out of the mud. That's, that's kind of how pigs roll, right? Any of you been around pigs much? Um, they're very dirty animals. And uh, like I said, not only are they dirty, but by conviction and by law, they were commanded not to have anything to do with the pigs. So there was this kind of impulse you have, just, just visceral, ooh, gross, they're dirty, but also a core conviction. These guys were unclean. This was a violation of God's law for the Jews. And so this is um, the most extreme picture of hitting rock bottom that Jesus could have painted. This guy was living wildly and sinning. He spent everything he had. He'd embarrassed the father, and now he wants to eat pig slop. And it's just, it's disgusting. And what I want you to see here is that it's at this moment, that's where he wakes up. That's where he recognizes how good the father is. And I know a lot of you, I've heard a lot of your stories For a lot of you, you've had a similar experience. It was in that place of rock bottom. It was in that place where you thought you couldn't get any lower than you did when you realized, you know what? Life with God is not so bad. I thought that this sin was going to bring me pleasure and delight, and I was going to have these highs and these wonderful experiences, and it was going to be so cool. And now I realize it's not working out. And life with God is much better than this. And so it says in verse 17, he came to himself. It's this idea of him coming to his senses, of, of waking up and realizing who God really is. He, he's shocked out of pleasure by recognizing that he's now been enslaved to his sin. And so he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Another interesting note that I saw from commentaries is that the hired servant was actually lower than a slave. A slave would have been a member of the household. A hired servant was more like a drifter that came in and out, you know, that occasionally did work. And so even the lowest of the low, lower than a slave, the hired servant that drifts in and out of the society, he would have had more than what he has. He's saying basically it'd be better to be a servant or a slave in my father's house than to continue to be a servant or a slave of my own selfishness. Bob Dylan had a song that says, You've got to serve somebody. And in our faith, we understand that there's actually freedom and joy in serving God, but there's pain and anguish in serving ourself or in serving sin. And that's what this story is vividly portraying here, something we've all tasted in different varying degrees in our life, that we pursue sin thinking it's going to save us, it's going to make everything better, it's going to bring us happiness, everything's going to be okay but it doesn't. It doesn't work out. And so here the story is, is pulling us along with this lost son to recognize that the sin can't save us. And it's better to be in the father's house to be, than to be living on our own pursuing sin. <clears throat> I think there's two big applications for us here. One is um, to recognize that if, if you are at that rock bottom, that it is better to be in the father's house. And he'll welcome you back. 
and I want to invite you, I believe this story is part of what God uses. He, by his spirit, uses his word to wake us up to that reality in our own life, to recognize, God, it would be better to be walking with you as a slave than to continue to think I'm a king, but I really I'm a slave to my own sin. And so I want to, I want to invite you to, to talk to me about it. If, if you're in that place where, where you're trying to figure out how to get out of this trap of sin, you don't know what steps to take, I'd love to talk to you more about what that means to go back to the Father's house. The other thing I want to say out of this section is that some of you are on your way to rock bottom, and you're, you're kind of waiting until you get there. And I, my prayer is that this story would wake you up to the reality that it's, it's not going to go well, that it's not worth it to wait. It's not worth it to say, well, I'll just pursue sin for a little while longer. And if you're, if you're in this trap of thinking that serial relationships are going to make everything okay, and that once you get those, the right relationship locked down, then you can get your faith life together, I would say just, just stop and recognize that that's a slavery to sin that's not going to satisfy you, that's not going to save you. Only Jesus can do that. If you're in beginning to toy with or to play with sexual immorality or pornography or self-medicating with alcohol or prescription drug addictions or, or whatever it may be, there's all these different ways that we think that'll get, that'll get me together, that'll fix my life, and then I can figure out my faith. Then I can think about my relationship with God. I would say just, just stop. Just stop and recognize that it's better to be a slave in your heavenly Father's house than to continue to think that serving sin is going to work out well because it's not. It's just going to end up at rock bottom. So I want to invite you to, to turn around, and I want to go on here to the next point and show how the motivation is not just the realization that you might have, that sin really stinks, right? But there's actually an even better motivation that, that God is good. God is sweet and God is kind. So let's look at him returning to the Father in the next section. Let's look at verses 18 through 24. We see him returning to the Father. And what's really interesting here in him returning to the Father, we see that the Father running to him is the, the piece of the story that really stands out, right? So he's shocking the Jewish listeners uh, by the way he's telling the story, how sinful the son is and how patient the father is. And he's going to shock them even more with this section. Verse 18, the son says, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here we see the son repenting. The word repent means you turn. Uh, It's literally in the Greek, it's a turn of mind and it kind of has this connotation of you turning your mind or your heart about what can save you. You're, you're turning from your false saviors and you're turning to the true savior. And that's the, the connotation of the word repentance. And so just like in the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, now this word comes up uh, again, or at least this concept comes up again where we have repentance. And Jesus is showing the audience that there's rejoicing in repentance and that repentance is necessary. And, and so we want to keep that in mind again as our culture continues to move towards a definition of grace that says grace is grace because there's no such thing as sin. We would say, no, no, no. Grace is grace because sin is real and it's killing us and we need God's help to get out of it. That's what makes grace so sweet. Others will define grace as God is tolerant and he just doesn't care. He just smiles and winks at sin and doesn't bother him. 
The Bible says, no, it bothers God so deeply that he sent his son to, to die on the cross, to, to take the full wrath of what sin and death brings and to rise from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all. That's how serious God is about sin. And so here we see repentance. We see turning. We see him saying, I'm a sinner. I messed up. So he's practicing what he's going to say. Verse 20, he arose and <clears throat> verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So again, this, this section of the story is about the son returning to the father, but it's really about the father running to the son. The embrace is the big shocking picture of this story. And so by way of application, this is how I would say it. In our own life, in our own spiritual journey, we often make much of the turning points in our life, the points in our life where we come to our senses and we say, you know what, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to try to obey him. I'm going to try to trust him. I'm going to try to do what he says. And sometimes that can get out of balance where we start to make the story all about us and all about what we've done. And here, the, the shocking turn in the story, again, that would have been somewhat offensive to the Jewish listeners was the father threw aside all of his worry about honor and dignity. He pulls up his fancy Middle Eastern robes. He ties them up. He runs down the street. Old patriarchs don't run. I mean, I'm, I'm 43 now. I'm getting to the point where I almost can't run anymore. So I, I understand this, right? I mean, there's, there's a, an issue of dignity here. There's an issue of um, reckless abandon. He just, he runs to his son. He embraces him. He kisses him. He restores him. He says, I love you. That's what's happening here. And so our return to God is always really about him running to us. And I just want you to get that here in this story. And so he embraces his son. There's a lot of famous paintings of this story. Uh, this story is often referred to as the story of the prodigal son. This is just kind of an aside for you. What prodigal means is spending everything you have. So a really good book on this story that I would recommend is called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller uses that name as a play on words because prodigal means you spend everything you have. So he's saying, we've always called this the story of the prodigal son because he spent everything, but really it's about a prodigal God, a God who's willing to spend everything to pursue us and to save us. And so there's a lot of famous paintings of the story of the prodigal son over the years. And here's one by Pompeo Battini. I hope I said that right. If you're Italian, tell me afterwards how to say that properly. But um, I know it's Batoni. Pompeo Batoni. I'm looking at my notes here. And why I love this famous painting, I think this is from the 1800s, uh, is because it shows the father wrapping the son in his cloak, in his robe. It shows how he's embracing him, which I think is the center point of this, center point of this part of the story. But it also shows him covering his son. That's an image we get throughout the New Testament, that God covers our shame, that we are hidden in Christ, that Christ himself, by faith in him, we're, we're actually wrapped in Jesus. We're hidden in Christ. We're clothed in him. He is our robe of righteousness. And so that's what he does in the story. He clothes his son. He restores his son. If you go back again to it in verse 21, the son begins to give his little speech of repentance. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, 
put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So he's barefoot. He's now going to have shoes put on. He's having the ring put on, which most commentators assume is like a signet ring, which is how they would seal important documents in that way. So it's kind of like saying he speaks for the family. So in a sense, he's, he's being restored. He's been given the identity of the father's family again. He's being brought right back into the family and being told, you're, you're part of me. I love you. I welcome you. You're, you're with me. And so it's this beautiful imagery of the son being restored. The father goes on and says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. This was a big deal for us who, you know, maybe you have barbecue a couple of times a week. This may not seem like a big deal, but this is a big deal in their culture, right? Barbecues were, were saved for special uh, citywide feasts and parties, you know, just for like big weddings and big celebrations. And, and that's what the father is doing here. This is going to be a big party. This is going to rock the whole village. He says, let us celebrate. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So again, joy. Again, it's picking up this theme that he, we already saw in the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. There's rejoicing when a sinner repents. There's celebration. And so again, let me say this one more time. Us returning to the Father is really about the Father's embrace. It's about seeing the Father as a Father who loves us and restores us and who brings us into his arms. And I want you to not miss that this morning. As a church that tries to carefully preach what the Bible says, uh, we try to be careful about balancing these two extremes that people kind of go into sometimes. One extreme is forgetting to honor God's law and what's right and wrong. So we want to honor that. The holiness of God is important. Another extreme is people forgetting God's grace. And so in an effort to try to balance those things out, um, what I want to make sure we don't do is, is miss out on the reality that although those things balance really only perfectly in the cross, that's the only place it really meets in this universe, is in Jesus fulfilling the perfect, holy, uh, righteous requirements of God by dying for our sins, and then in that same action showing us grace, salvation, and forgiveness. So in a sense, those things are perfectly balanced in the cross. I think our motivation is, is often the grace of God. Now, we looked a couple of weeks ago that Jesus told stories about hell. Jesus didn't shy away from motivating people with the realities of judgment. So it's, it's possible to be motivated by, I don't want to do that because it's going to go really badly for me, right? But I think in these moments where we are trapped in sin, what's really important for you to know is this image of the Father running to you to embrace you. Because I believe what, what the evil one, what the accuser, that's what Satan's name means. He's literally the accuser. I believe what he does is he judges us. When we're trapped in sin, he just continues to throw that sin at us so that we believe uh, more deeply in our shame than we do in the Father's embrace. So I want you, again, to see this picture of the Father's embrace, the Father's gracious love for you, and I believe that's what's going to be able to motivate you to let go of sin and return to the Father, so if you have that vision of God. So my question for you is, do you see God that way? Do you see God as he's revealed himself to us through Jesus? That's what he said in the book of John, right? If, if you've, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how we know what the invisible God looks like. We look at Jesus, 
We look at these pictures of Jesus. That's how we know. So my question is, do you see God the Father that way? Or do you see him as a God who's really capricious and he likes you one day and he doesn't like you the next? Maybe he's happy with you today because you went to church. Maybe he's going to be sad with you tomorrow because you lose your temper. Maybe he's happy with you one day because you read your Bible. Maybe he's sad with you the next day because you drank too much. And God flip-flops on how he feels about you. And he's happy with you and then he's mad at you. And then he's happy with you and then he's mad at you. Well, here I believe we see the picture of God showing himself to us as compassionate, as a father who loves us and runs to us and restores us and embraces us. Again, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about sin. God cared so much, he sent Jesus to take care of it. But you have to have your, your vision, your picture of who God is clearly in your mind or you'll never return to him, you'll never run to him. The last thing I want us to see then is opposing the father and the other brother. So a lot of people like to say that this is about two lost sons, and and that's this extra twist here at the end of the story. It's basically every turning point in the story has been a twist, has been an an added emphasis that Jesus is uh, adding on top of what he previously revealed in the other two stories. So in verse 25, we see the older son opposing the father, opposing what the father is about, um, not going into the party, not joining in the father's celebration, uh, and, and really challenging the father directly. So look at verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So the celebrating was so loud he could hear it. I've been uh, to meetings in downtown Austin. I don't know if you've ever hung around Austin much, but you know there's like live music in every other building, downtown Austin. And so you can be a block away, and you can be hearing a party and a celebration that's happening a block away, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. It is, is loud music. Uh, I was trying to envision that kind of music. I found a picture of a, a kind of big band swing dancing happening here. They're saying this was loud music and loud dancing. I mean, dancing. I didn't know dancing could be loud, but apparently the dancing is loud as well. And so he's hearing this. He heard music and dancing. Verse 26, he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He doesn't go in. He calls a servant to explain it. Verse 27, and the servant, he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, now talking about the older son, but he was angry and refused to go in. Hear that. The older son, who we assume here Jesus has put in the story to help uh, connect with the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, The older son refuses to go in. The older son refuses to go in. And what does the father do? His father came out and entreated him. He pleaded with him. Sometimes in life, when we're trying to do everything right, we get mad at a God who shows grace and forgiveness to people. We get frustrated. And we don't want to join God in his party. We don't want to join God in his grace. He refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is an angry rebuke of the father's celebration. This is an angry rebuke of the father's love for the one that was lost. The father responds, verse 31, he said to him, son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. One more surprise twist in the story as Jesus ends the story right there. And again, just leaves us hanging, inviting the religious people to decide who they're going to be. Are they going to pout and throw a temper tantrum outside the party? Are they going to join in the father's party? Are are they going to accuse the father of being unrighteous in the way that he shows grace? Or are they going to join in and say, this God who is absolutely holy and absolutely righteous can be at the same time gracious and merciful. And we want to join in his party. We want to join in what he's doing. So that's a question for us as well. A lot of us are religious people. A lot of us have worked very hard to do what's right. We believe, and I believe, there is real blessing in obedience. Proverbs is full of these promises. But sometimes we can want the blessings of obedience but not want the Father. And so Jesus is setting up this tension where where you can obey, but you're obeying as a slave because you're trying to get something out of God the Father. And I slip into this all the time. I think earlier in my life I would have I would have related more to the younger son. I would have related more to the younger son who's sinning and walking away from God, comes to his senses, he turns, and he's accepted by God by his grace and forgiveness. And that would have kind of summarized my early life as a Christian. But as you walk with Jesus for a while, a lot of us, we start to get better at obeying about doing what's right. And you can kind of slip in your thinking and begin to think that God owes you something. And that you're actually earning something. And you can begin to forget that your status is based on God's grace and his kindness to you. The Father says, all that, all that I have is yours. The Father's saying, I, I've been gracious to you all along. That God, in his graciousness, gave me an illustration of this just this week. Uh, we had some car trouble. And if you know me well, uh, I have chronic car trouble. And uh, <clears throat> with two driving teenagers... We've got a fleet of four cars, and it's horrifying. I don't recommend letting your kids get older. But um, car broke down, and just in my thinking, I was like, God, what, what's going on? Like, I th- I've been trying to do what's right. You know, like, that's just immediately where your brain goes, right? Something goes wrong. You think, God, I've been trying to be good. Why are you doing this to me? I, th- I thought I did the right things. There's a very dangerous place our heart can go where we start to think God owes us because we've put in enough coins of obedience. And so now the vending machine God owes us some goodies, right? Some treats, some blessings. And Jesus is saying that's never how it's worked. That's never how it's worked. Are there, are there blessings? Is it good to obey? Of course it's good to obey. We're not, we're not discounting that reality. We're just saying at the center of it is the Father's love, and we should love the Father more than the Father's stuff. We should love the Father more than the fatted calf or the barbecued goat or whatever it might be. We should, we should love the Father. We should be about what the Father is about. And so Jesus leaves the story hanging here, asking us if we're going to join in the party. And remember, the last two stories, we saw very clearly there's only rejoicing in repenting. There is no rejoicing apart from repenting. And so if, if you're here this morning and, and you're you're starting to slide into that dangerous place of thinking, God, I've done what's right. I don't have anything to repent of. I just want to warn you, that's, 
It's a horrifying place to be. Jesus says, that's how you miss out on the kingdom. That's how you miss out on the party. You, you stand on the outside thinking you don't have anything to repent of, and you miss the rejoicing. You miss the celebration. Tim Keller, in his teaching on this story, makes a really interesting connection that I think is helpful for us to just kind of wrap up here. As we look at the Father's love, I said already, John says that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, right? So the Father is this invisible God, and we're not sure what he's really like, except he's revealed himself, and he's shown us who he is through Jesus. So now we know what he's like. And Keller makes the interesting connection that, that Jesus, if you read the Gospels, if you understood how he lived his life, how he willingly and obediently went to the cross for us, and how he rose from the grave, proving that he has conquered sin and death for us, that he's who the older brother should have been. He's the older brother that should have been. He's the older brother that joins in the Father's program. He's the older brother that says, yeah, Father, I'm on the same page with you, and I'm going to spend everything I've got to go after this younger brother. So I just want to leave you with that picture, that that's the God that we serve, this God who spent everything for us, who pursues us through Jesus, taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness, not because we've obeyed, but because he's gracious. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us so much. Thank you for showing us what that love looks like in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would continue to shape our hearts by this grace, that we would live in sync and in coordination with with your program and your values and your care for the lost, that we would care for the lost because we know we were also the lost and that you showed that grace to us. Thank you for running to us. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for saving us. Help us to celebrate what you celebrate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.